0: My name is Jesse Hawkins, and welcome to episode one of Junk Filter, a new podcast about film, music, politics, and jokes. The idea behind this podcast is that I've come across a lot of funny and interesting people in the worlds of politics Twitter and film Twitter, and perhaps I'm on Twitter too much because I've read a lot of their work. And I thought it would be a good idea to invite them to have conversations with me about the subjects that we usually talk about online already. Film, music, politics, and jokes. And all four interests converge for our first episode, a deep dive into the music of actor Richard Harris. His notorious 1967 pop smash MacArthur Park is his most famous song, but it's only the tip of the iceberg. Harris recorded several epic concept albums in partnership with the great American songwriter Jimmy Webb that are by turns beautiful, powerful, and completely insane. Toronto musician Marker Starling and I share a great love for this footnote to pop music history. Here's our conversation.
1: Richard Harris. That's right. That's why we're here. (laughs) That's the reason for our conversation today.
0: Richard Harris, where to begin? Uh, where to begin? Well, actually, to begin, I want to introduce you formally. Yes. yes. Welcome sir. to the show. Welcome to being my first guest. Thank
1: you so much. Uh, thank you for having
0: me. It's a great honor to be your first guest on the show. I really had no other choice. <laughs> well, uh, thank you. Marker Starling, but I know him as Chris Cummings, is a Toronto musician and he and i met in the year 1984 that's right so we went to school together we went to film school together we've been uh collaborators throughout our lives yeah and you were so kind as to provide me with a full suite of themes and interstitials for the program right oh that was my pleasure that was so much fun to do yeah i gave you sort of ideas about what i wanted but you actually delivered beyond my expectations which you always have thank you um so yes welcome to the show this is a podcast about sort of niche culture and weird uh artifacts and things that you know cultural items that people get most people don't really know about but the people who do know about them are obsessed with them
1: yes the
0: minutiae the minutiae this the uh ephemera the ephemera the it's important that junk filters sort of like the concept being like the treasure from the trash right and the sort of stuff that you'd find in a dollar bin that is actually you know of of note well this certainly falls into that category (laughs) yeah we're going to be talking today about the music of richard harris Uh, a music that uh, i know that we both have a great
1: fondness for and um we have had for many years, especially in, I would say, the late 80s and early 90s.
0: Yeah, I mean, we were already friends Mm -hmm. in school, but Richard Harris was also a bit of a motivator for us in terms of uh, our sort of expression and doing comedy stuff. um, Absolutely. Because Harris was sort of the sweet spot of deadly serious and completely straight-faced and also completely ridiculous.
1: Right. There's a, a total fearlessness of being ludicrous uh, in all of his stuff that, uh, you know, he was really going for it. Uh, so how did you first hear Richard Harris? Like his his
0: music or his persona? How did you know first know of him? Well, I knew who Richard Harris was just because he was a ubiquitous actor when I was a kid. And he worked a lot when I was young. And uh, I didn't really know of him as the sort of where he came from, which was sort of the kitchen sink British dramas. He was in This Sporting Life. He was in This Sporting Life. That was directed by Lindsay Anderson. That's right. And and he, that was the movie that sort of put him on the map. I remember when we were teenagers, uh, we went to go and see Red Desert.
1: Right. Yeah, the, that, that's true. Like, that, that was the first time I ever saw Red Desert. And I hated it at that point. But then several years later, seeing it again, I absolutely loved it. And I, I still yeah. consider it one of, my, one of my favorites. But yeah, it's that's really a very some... very harris like performance.
0: Yeah, I think Antonioni was doing a thing where he was basically coloring the landscape and everything red. And so I, I think he dyed Richard Harris's hair red for the movie. Oh yeah. <laughs> Harris doesn't really have much to do but to be a sort of stoic male. Yeah. Sort of distant male along with Monica Vitti.
1: And and he uh he left the film uh, before it was finished as well.
0: He doesn't so look happy.
1: He, yeah, like he he had a falling out with Antonioni and um he left the film before it was finished and they they replaced him with a double, so a lot of in a lot of
0: shots it's actually a different actor, like you see the back of
1: his head only.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Red Desert was a movie that I kind of watched out of a sense of obligation when I was a kid, but it's an incredible movie. It actually grew yeah. in my estimation when I watched it again.
1: Yeah, and it's his most restrained performance, for sure. Like, it's his, mm-hmm. at least sort of least taking histrionic. up space. Yeah. <laughs> but he, you know, he's an imposing person. Like, he was six foot three. Mm-hmm. So... He yeah, he was a former foot, presence.
0: and he was a footballer when he was young, and, you know.
1: That's right, that's right. He, his actual, I, I've just finished, well, I've, I've been pie- piecing together bits of information from this biography from 1990 by Michael Feeney Callan, Richard Harris, A Sporting Life. And uh, he uh, he was born in 1930, and uh, he wanted to be, you know, a soc- soccer was his main thing, like, until his early twenties. And then when he was bedridden for two years, uh, between age 23 and 25 with, um, TB. So he, he, uh, that was when he, he started reading a lot and that's when he wanted to become an actor. Like he suddenly had this love of literature and like that ignited him, uh, this sort of artistic desire and, uh, and made him want to go to London and become an actor. He was, he lived in Limerick, Ireland, for the first, like, mm-hmm. 25 years of his life. So he was a late starter when it came to acting.
0: Mm-hmm. But he kind of made up ground very quickly. He was very much in demand. Yeah, he quickly became a star, yeah. But in 1967, he really hit the big time when he agreed to star as King Arthur in the musical of Camelot, which was right. a huge release for Warner Brothers. Well,
1: let, let me just go back a little bit here. So I... Uh... I want to tell you how I first heard about Harris. So uh, I had heard the, the version of MacArthur park by Maynard Ferguson, the, uh, flugelhorn player. Uh, and I was obsessed with that fast part. Bum, 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 I thought it was so menacing and, um, you know, that always fascinated me. And then I also had the Camelot soundtrack from an early age. Cause I was obsessed with, uh, learner and low musicals. So I I, I knew all of the, the Camelot songs and I was acquainted with that sort of over-egged singing style that he has already on the on the Camelot
0: soundtrack. hmm Yeah he's just he's kind of a combination of uh, what the musical term of lolly gagging which is singing like this. You
2: swore that you had taught me everything from A to Z with nearly an omission in between. I will tell you what you obviously forgot.
0: That's how a ruler rules a queen. You know, sort of a singing and talking approach. Yeah. Rex Harrison being the ultimate example of that.
1: Rex Harrison, who, whom he idolized and whom his wife left him for. Uh, well, after his, his divorce from his first wife, Liz, she, she ended up marrying Rex Harrison. Wow. <laughs> I did not know that. And she also dated Christopher Plummer. Uh, after oh, Harris,
0: just a trifecta. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, wow. um, so she was a big fan of musicals, I guess.
1: Yeah, she had a she had a type. And and Richard Burton had originated the role in uh, the Broadway version, but uh, they and they wanted him for the movie as well. But I think his price was too high, so Harris begged uh, Jack Warner and Joshua Logan, the director, to. Give him a screen test, and they kept turning him down. And uh, he sent these incredible telegrams. I, I just have to read, uh, read you these telegrams. Only Harris for Arthur, and Harris better than Burton. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> he awesome. also disguised himself as a waiter to deliver a note to Logan at a party. Harris oh. for King Arthur, uh, <laughs> and finally.
0: Wow, this is like a Oscar campaign, but
1: before the movie. <laughs> and he, he finally offered to pay for his own screen test. And then once he had done the screen test, they realized he was perfect for it. So they, they cast him. I just watched all of Camelot for the first time. Yeah. Um, like a month ago. And uh, I had always dreaded watching it because I thought that it would be one of those paint your wagon style over, you know, yeah. waterlogged, bloated 60s musicals. Yeah. And uh, it kind of was, but it was a bit better than I thought it would be. And Harris was, uh, although in the in if opening hour or so, he's very sort of trying to be very charming and happy-go-lucky. But then when once it starts to like things start to go downhill for him, he he does
0: he acts that part very well. Mm-hmm. And Vanessa Redgrave is Guinevere
1: in it. V- Vanessa Redgrave, yeah, and uh, Franco Nero. As Lancelot, who also has some incredibly ludicrous uh, singing moments, and uh, Franco Nero and Vanessa Redgrave uh, actually had a child during the making of Camelot, and uh, he he basically quit acting in movies afterwards to be with her. So so that was something that came out of it that was interesting. But um, you know, it was about this love triangle between uh, King Arthur, Guinevere, and Lancelot. Mm-hmm. And after after watching the movie the next day, I realized I had just watched a three hour movie about a cuck. <laughs> and his, his it's his cuckdom that that uh, ruins everything. Like the fact that King Arthur accepts the fact that he's in this love triangle, yeah. and like everyone, <laughs> the immorality of that uh, ruins the Round Table and causes like the you know brings about the demise of this whole society that he's trying to set up this idealistic society. And uh, so that got me thinking, you know, Jimmy Webb's entire catalog has a lot of cuck anthems in it, for for, for sure. You know, like a lot of the songs are are about uh, uh, the condition of being
0: dumped. Jimmy Webb was an up and coming songwriter, sort of in the mold of uh, of a Burt Bacharach and Hal David, yeah. but with also with a, a, a tinge of the sort of sunshine pop. Stuff that was coming out of uh, the West Coast, exactly. sort of psychedelic pop music, exactly. So he was kind of a fusing of the sort of urban sophistication of a backrack with the sort of sex and drugs culture a little bit. He had a huge hit with um, "Up Up and Away" by the Fifth Dimension, right? Right. Which is about, I guess, getting high or something. I'm not right. sure. Yet. <laughs> I never
1: thought of it that way, but yeah.
0: And he was also he yeah. was a
1: good deal younger than um, backrack. Uh, He was born in 46, so he was only like 21, uh, 22 when he was doing all this stuff. In the book, uh, the Richard Harris book, it it says that he was only 19, but that can't be possible if he was born in in 46. Oh, yeah, so Camelot, um, they shot most of it in Spain, but then they moved to L.A., and that was when he met uh, Jimmy Webb. And I'll just read you a, a brief quote from the book here. Uh, this is in 1967. After a wound-licking retreat, he was back on the happy party circuit, the oldest hippie in town, but with the energy of a whippet. <laughs> this is the
0: this is the, the kind of prose that this book is filled with. Oh, amazing. Um, Richard Harris and Jimmy Webb met at the Coronet Theater in Los Angeles. They were doing an anti-war fundraiser. That's right. It was a benefit uh,
1: that Harris helped organize for the American Theater of Being, which was an avant-garde uh, theater troupe run by his friend Frank Silvera, who was an actor he was in the Guns of Navarone with, I believe. Mm-hmm. And uh, Johnny Rivers brought Webb to this rehearsal and suggested him for the accompanist. So that was how they initially met. And then like six, six months later or something, Jimmy Webb got a, a telegram Uh, from Harris saying, uh, come to London, let's make a record, love Richard. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it was was something that
0: Webb had actually said, oh yeah, sure, let's make a record when they were in LA together, except Harris actually held him to it and wrote him a telegram and sort of expected uh, him to fly over to meet with him. Uh, Yeah, Webb had, in his arsenal of songs, he had had this song called MacArthur Park, which was a, at one point, 22 minute long cantata that yeah, was rejected crazy. by both the Fifth Dimension and the Association for its excessive length. Merely putting it on uh-huh. a record would, would put it as the centerpiece. And um, right. what had happened was that the producer of, of both the Association and Fifth Dimension was a man named Bones Howe. And, right, and right. Mr. Howe had tasked Webb with the challenge of creating a very complex song with classical music overtones and time signatures that could be released as a single. Oh,
1: oh, but, it was Bones Howe's idea.
0: Yeah, cool. he basically, because Webb was like trying everything and anything. So he basically set a challenge for him and Webb actually met up with it, but nobody actually uh-huh. wanted to record it. It would have been incredible if the association had recorded it, but anyway. Yeah, but um. so anyway, so Harris uh, and Webb met in London and the last song that Uh, Webb tried to sell Harris on was MacArthur Park, which he went bonkers Right,
1: right Yeah, they had a a session where Jimmy Webb sat in Richard Harris's house in London and uh, played him 30 or 40 songs on the piano and Harris was like I'll have that one and that one No, no, not that one and he was choosing them one by one and then when he heard MacArthur Park he said, that's the one, that's the song I want to record now He was certain that it would be a hit. And so they they budgeted the album at $85,000 for the whole Tramp Shining record. And um, Harris had already a contract with Columbia Records from the Camelot soundtrack, and they turned it down because the budget was too high. So that was why they ended up with ABC Dunhill, because uh, that was the label that Webb was already on.
0: Can we say a little something about the lyrics and everything for MacArthur Park and the meaning of it before we really get into it?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Uh, So, well, you know more of the backstory. Well, Webb has been living this song down for his entire life, right? Uh, Whenever anybody interviews him, he has to explain what the lyrics mean. And over the years, he's told many true stories, but a lot of untrue stories. So there's a lot of confusion. Uh My favorite untrue theory was that MacArthur Park was written after he witnessed the love of his life marrying another man in a ceremony at the park. <laughs> MacArthur Park is a huge park in downtown L.A. Yeah. And that all the imagery came from that day. So there was a rainstorm that disrupted the wedding. The wedding cake got destroyed uh, in the rain. That, that, that makes So he was basically sense. witnessing this huge heartbreak.
1: Someone was wearing a striped pair of pants at the wedding.
0: Yeah, and there were there was, some old there, men there playing checkers a... by the trees. Uh, I, so yeah, so so he was. They say that he was in love with a girl who who left him, and that he watched her get married. Oh, okay. But, but in fact, the most reputable version of the tale is that Webb, uh, who was basically like everything that he was experiencing, he was writing down and turning into music, mm-hmm. was madly in love with this woman whose name was Susie Horton. Many of mm-hmm. the songs that he wrote at the time were inspired by their romance, right? including Where's and, the Playground, Susie? Right. And Sue
1: gets mentioned in one of the Yard Went On Forever songs as well, right?
0: Yes. So Susie Horton used to work for an insurance company that was across the street from MacArthur Park in Los Angeles. And so he and her would meet routinely for lunch. And so the song right. is supposed to be a microcosm of all the things that he saw in the park over the course of their... Eventually doomed romance. Ah, uh, okay, that's that makes sense too. I like that. When it came to recording the song, though, uh, Harris recorded his vocals in Dublin, and in Los Angeles, the orchestral accompaniment was recorded. And one of the most significant things about the band that put this song together was that they were members of what has is known today as the Wrecking Crew who were a clique of sort of go-to session musicians in L.A. Right. Hal Blaine. Basically, name a big hit in the 1960s, right. and they probably were the band on it. So I you know you, their work from California Dreamin'.
1: Any, anything of note that was recorded. Yeah,
0: they recorded everything. TV themes, jingles, and group, you know, they were the basic group. All the... Uh, most of the musicians in Pet Sounds are the are the Wrecking Crew. Right,
1: they worked extensively with the with Brian Wilson, right?
0: Yeah, they worked on Good Vibrations. They worked on Mrs. Robinson, Bridge Over Troubled Water. Name any major West Coast pop group, and it was probably the Wrecking Crew playing on
1: it. The backing tracks for A Tramp Shining were recorded at at, at Sound Recorders, which was the same studio where. Uh... A lot of the Beach Boys uh, material was
0: recorded, and uh, a lot of the other songs that you're mentioning. Mm -hmm. So, so like that was in his in the back pocket for Webb too. Like he had this tremendously gifted orchestra that could actually fulfill the expectations that he had in terms of the song. MacArthur Park was seven and a half minutes long, which was unheard of in the in the '60s.
1: Yeah, they had to force ABC Dunhill to to release it as a single. Yeah. And one of the, one of the uh, people interviewed in the book said that, uh, you know, it, it was destroying the music business because you could play three singles in that time. <laughs> it, was like, it was destroying the music industry. And the, the book also notes that uh, Hey Jude, the Beatles' Hey Jude, which is also seven minutes long, was released in August of 68, four months after uh, MacArthur Park.
0: Yeah, so MacArthur Park kind of blazed the trail for very, very long songs that could be played on top 40 radio so a tramp shining was recorded with a 35 piece orchestra and female choirs and that stylistic approach uh led to the actual album a tramp shining which came out in early 1968 it was recorded basically to cash in on the mammoth success of macarthur park Oh, so MacArthur Park was recorded first,
1: and then they they did the rest of the songs. After. Yeah,
0: the 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 massive success of MacArthur Park led to the actual record contract with uh, with ABC Dunhill, I guess, to produce a few records. Uh, okay, okay. So yeah, they
1: had a six six album deal with ABC Dunhill, I think, or Harris Harris did. Because
0: every Harris record is on ABC Dunhill, even the ones that he didn't do with Jimmy Webb. So Jimmy Webb basically had to round up some songs that he already had uh, mm-hmm. to, to put this record out. And then it was assembled as a loose concept album. The songs were written by Webb, but they added these short musical interludes between the songs that serve yeah. as mood linkages. Yeah. I love those. At the time, uh, al- albums were starting to evolve from being a bunch of songs on a record to being a, an overall concept. Right. Beach Boys, and, yeah, Beatles, yeah, except you know yeah. MacArthur Park was a song that you either loved or hated at the time because of how bombastic it is,
1: but it was it was number two, uh it went to number two in the billboard mm-hmm. chart, so people at the time loved it, and uh i i it feels like the kind of song like what we were talking about when we met the other day. It's it's like the kind of song that was only cool for a short period of time, like between 67 and 70 or so. Like after about 1970, it would have not been looked upon as fondly as it was uh, at that time, which means that it must have like embodied something that people were feeling very strongly in 1968 that people looked back on and went,
0: hmm, like what? <laughs> what were they thinking? You uh, know? Tramp Shining was uh, also quite notable because it was the first album the first pop album that actually credited the session musicians on the actual cover art that had never been done before right
1: right so there's a, so that that shows that there's a real emphasis on the like the artisticness of it and uh how it's a you know an artistic endeavor first and foremost and only a commercial mm-hmm. endeavor secondly mm-hmm. the other thing that's notable about it is that um it must be one of the first songs that is sung by an untrained singer that, that gets all the way to number two, you know, like a few years before 1968, that would have been unthinkable to have someone, a, an actor who doesn't normally sing, uh, have a, you know, a song with, with kind of eccentric and unusual phrasing. And, uh, you know, it doesn't hit every note and, uh, a lot of things that would have been called mistakes before, uh, to have that, suddenly uh, there on the radio would have been a sign of something
0: unusual yeah it would have been very difficult to uh contemplate a couple of years earlier but you know in the swinging 60s and as the squares and the hippies were starting to sort of you know crash culturally into each other the tramp shining is a great example of that because yeah it's uh sort of like you could classify it almost as easy listening but there's almost nothing easy about any of the listening in the song it's so complicated and emotionally open right
1: it has the trappings of easy listening but the content of it is much more dark and kind of personal
0: a tramp shining had macarthur park as its main centerpiece but it also did have a second standard which was called didn't we
2: Our
1: song in didn't we, girl? Yeah, and uh, Richard Harris said that he had a close personal prayed. connection to that song uh, emotionally uh, because it seemed to mirror the the breakdown of his marriage to his first wife, Liz, that was happening at the time.
0: So he poured a lot of himself into that performance as well. There's two terrific songs on A Tramp Shining. Uh, one is called In the Final Hours, which is a yeah. very complicated and hook-heavy ballad.
2: Now the dying flowers sing an old song that haunts me. And now nobody wants me. Oh Summer these
0: are the fun like strange chord changes flowers. that take a lot of hairpin turns and uh, and then a female choir comes in towards the end but it's uh, I love it's, that Again what I was saying about uh, Webb being this sort of bridge between Burt Bacharach and things like the Beach Boys and the Beatles. And the second song, which is very explicitly a lot like a Burt Bacharach, is called If You Must Leave My Life. Absolutely.
2: Somewhere in my mouth There'll always be The taste of you Forever is so very long I don't want your life to go wrong so, girl, if you must leave my consider every part, and baby, walk.
1: Yeah, I love that song, too. Uh, that was one of the first ones I latched onto when I got the record. I think we, we both did. It's what we would call cringe nowadays. I don't know. <laughs> it's cope. Is it cope?
0: when we were young younger we were very much into comedy and wretched excess and uh histrionics and richard harris fulfilled he ticked all the boxes for us at the time i mean he was so bombastic and but the thing is it's so sincere oh yeah the utter sincerity of it is
1: is what grabs me uh, now i mean he's not uh, trying to sell you anything he's just uh <laughs> you know He's emotionally involved in the material that he's performing.
0: During our research, we we discovered that one of our heroes, Greg Turkington, is a major fan of Richard Harris.
1: That's right. Oh, yeah, so I'm going to read this quote from Greg Turkington uh, from an interview that he did with uh, creativeindependent.com. Uh, he said, anyway, I had this fanzine... And it started out covering Flipper and Meat Puppets. At some point, as a big record guy who loved collecting records, I found a couple records. One was A Tramp Shining by Richard Harris, and then some Tom Jones records. And I somehow saw that this stuff was the real punk rock. This kind of showmanship and emotional intensity, especially with Richard Harris when he's doing the Jimmy Webb songs. To me, those lyrics are heavier and more intense and more powerful than anything and his performance it sounds like he's sobbing. Richard Harris is an actor first and foremost and he put that sort of actor style into his singing. That's yeah, very true. That's
0: very true. That's that basically sums up you know why he clicked with me so much that he was singing but it was it was like showmanship and and at a very very high wire act level of of showmanship like where you could either accept it or completely reject it. <laughs> And there's
1: no phoniness. Yeah, there's no sort of showbiz phoniness, uh, which there might be in a lot of other crooner-type singers with singing with a big orchestra like that. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's all... The, the emotion is so, like, f- forefronted.
0: I'm going to play for you guys now a little thing that confirms what Greg Turkington is saying. Harris w- appears on a Burt Bacharach TV special that was promoting the doomed musical Lost Horizon. A musical
1: Richard Harris should have been in
0: oh yeah but anyway so Harris uh, confirms Turkington's theory about the role of acting as being more important than singing uh, in this clip
2: let me ask you something what does an actor look for in a song that say a singer or a musician might not Well, I'm sort of very concerned with words and emotions and with the sort of honesty that uh, the song was trying to con- you know, I'm trying to um, convey mm-hmm. okay. I'd say the Jim Webb songs certainly convey that. Oh, tremendous! Yeah, tremendous. You see, I'm not a train singer, so I do you know what's what I can do best, which is acting. So I try not to sing the songs, but more or less to act them out. I'm supposed to try and become the person that is saying the things that the song is trying to say. Whatever it is you do, it's, it's sensational. Thank
0: you. A uh, Tramp Shining was uh, Grammy nominated uh, that year, and Jimmy Webb, which which award did he win? orchestration a A tramp shining is is presented to the listener as a concept album by the way that the interludes are stitched together but they actually then made a real concept album which came out at the fall of 1968 an album called the yard went on forever so this it only came out a few months after a tramp shining eh not only that but it came out a few months after the robert kennedy assassination and the first lyrics in the first song which is the title track, The Yard Went On Forever, explicitly referenced the Kennedy assassination. Can you explain a little on that? Right. Well, the, uh, one of uh, Robert Kennedy's last things that he said was,
1: is everybody okay? And um, uh, as he was, you know, after he had been shot in, in the uh, Ambassador Hotel. That's the right hotel, right? Yep. Um, in uh, June of 68. Is everybody safe? Yeah, so so this became the, the opening of uh, The Art Went Out Forever, Is Everybody Safe? It has this very haunting opening where it starts with like a very high uh, piano and then this kind of choir comes in. Singing is, every, is everybody safe? And then Harris, you know, then it becomes more fully orchestrated and Harris starts to sing. But uh, you, can, you can hear right away that this is meant to be a sort of epic uh, album, like an art, art pop record about contemporary events in, in America.
2: Volcanoes and tornadoes on Doomsday.
1: There's something very apocalyptic. I was just about to say that. that the record has a very apocalyptic
0: uh, feel like throughout, even when it's trying to be sort of happier. Yes. in uh, the title track, The Yard Went On Forever, actually goes off the rails a couple of times. <laughs> um, it <laughs> continues to do time signature changes. There is all of a sudden a, a, an entire orchestra section opens up, uh, it sounds like children's uh, singing Di profundis in Latin.
1: Yeah, there's Latin in it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and we should also mention uh, the cover art for The Yard Went
1: On Forever, which I'm looking at right now. Harris uh, is sort of in a frame within a frame. Uh, he's sitting in a sort of idyllic backyard uh, with like a young child, a little girl. And he's the that part of the image is in color, but the whole rest of it is in this kind of bleak black and white landscape.
0: Yes. And it has, again, a complete, this time a complete list of the various uh, players from the wrecking crew who played on the record. And it also mentions in the liner notes produced, at least in theory, by Jimmy Webb.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and it also comes with this, the lyric uh, booklet as a little printed sheet, which. Uh, I, I got this record as, a, as one of many sealed copies which were available for $1.50 at the Vinyl Museum in Toronto uh, in 1988. And they all had this, uh, this slip that sort of, uh, you know, the, the slip of paper, part of which stuck outside of the, the album and was sealed in as well that says, All the lyrics to the Jimmy Webb songs are included in this album.
0: In block capitals. I want to point out that A.C. Newman of the New Pornographers once tweeted that this is his favorite album. And I have to say, he's not wrong. This is definitely my favorite Harris record for sure. I think it's the highest
1: point uh, that they, you know, they were going for it and they, they really uh, did something. I could bind your
2: mind to mine in time to keep you
1: from that world of hills. But this also has like the most if ludicrous the songs as well. Like the, the, where they're really reaching for a dramatic uh, something that perhaps shouldn't be attempted in the realm of easy listening.
0: Yeah. You know what I mean? And I, I presume you're talking about the song Interim?
1: Interim and also The Hive. Where it's some kind of dystopian society where uh young girls are sacrificed to the hive, which is never explained,
0: yeah, but yeah, it, it, it's very disturbing. It sounds like yeah. some weird female human sacrifice is going on,
1: yeah um, so that that song sticks out as like kind of uh coming from a different place than uh many of the other songs which are very personal in nature, mm-hmm. like watermark and interim.
0: Yeah, but 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 the hive is sort of the companion piece to the yard. Went on forever in the sense of like just the collapse of civilization. Right. They were
1: they were undergoing something similar to what it feels like we're undergoing now, where society seems to be collapsing all around us, and we want to put all of that into you know express that artistically somehow, and um, that seems to be what what Jimmy Webb is is, uh, is doing here, and and Richard Harris is interpreting.
2: See her walking quietly As though she really was a virgin With her tiny feet Precisely on the line She thinks her whitely thoughts About the things she bought And the altar crouches silently Waiting for the virgin to arrive You can almost hear the buzzing of the
1: one thing I did find out about the making of "The Yard Went On Forever" was that they—he um, had already kind of exhausted his his uh, main, you know, things in his song bag, as he said, his satchel. So he said he had to dig a bit deeper in the satchel, looking for songs for uh, "The Yard Went On Forever." So he he went back to some earlier ones that Harris liked, and um, so that means that. A lot of these songs were written when he was a teenager, like maybe 15, 16 years old, uh, which is crazy to think that, uh, you know, these these songs written by someone so young are given this very sophisticated arrangement and then sung by a 38-year-old man. You know, it's like the the the, uh, the age difference between Webb and Harris is, is notable, but also uh, the fact that, these are like a teenage boy's uh, uh, thoughts on on the world and uh, and how this is all being built up and, and turned into this orchestral uh, suite
2: he, married her. He, married her. he put his arms around her and he carried.
0: big revelation from deciding to do this Richard Harris episode with you was just being reacquainted once again with just what an incredible album The Yard went on forever. Yeah,
1: yeah. I I will say, like, the first time I listened to it this year, which was probably the first time in 20 years, 15 years, I I was kind of like, oh, this is so bombastic. This is so over the top. But then the more I I listened to it four or five times, and the more I listened to it, the more I realized, like, this is incredible,
0: (laughs) you know. This album is a masterpiece. Like, I have a question about you and your music. Do you do you think that Harris had some kind of weird latent influence on what you do? I definitely do. I, I feel that more
1: now that I've listened to all the records again. And, um, you know, I love strange. I, I like a good hairpin uh, chord change, uh, which is really hard to pull off. And um, I always uh, tried to do that in my music, partly inspired by Bert Bacharach, partly inspired by Jimmy Webb. Like the way that the lyrics are so, uh, (laughs) so kind of direct and uh, personal, I guess that had a real effect on me as well, because I've done, I've certainly done my fair share of what I would call male complaint songs. And uh, these are, these are, uh, you know, male complaint songs of the highest order for sure.
0: Yeah. I mean, Harris has such a macho persona but these songs are all, a lot of them are all vulnerable and wounded.
1: Yeah, which would have been, I guess, fairly new in the late 60s. I guess that's part of the, one of the things that made it stand out was that men weren't allowed to be sensitive, you know, prior to 1967 or whatever. And then suddenly they were very sensitive. Overly sensitive. Yeah.
2: What a lot, of flowers. What a lot. Of
0: so sunshine. there's a little uh, record in between concept albums that was called the Richard Harris Love Album, which was I guess a contractual obligation record.
1: Yeah, I have no idea why this record exists.
0: It's it's a Greatest Hits B-Sides compilation. So it has the love songs from the first two albums with three additional non-album tracks, and they're segued together into a song suite. Yeah, the segues are very rough on this. There's really only one uh, standout track, which is called What a Lot of Flowers, which is sample-friendly. This brings us to the sort of second phase of Harris's uh, career. Harris performed the song called My Boy, which was written by Jimmy Webb, but not written for Richard Harris. Yes. At a music contest that was sponsored by Radio Luxembourg in 1971. Yes. (laughs) He didn't win, but he recorded the song, and he released it as a single and the title track for his next record, which was called My Boy. My Boy.
1: Yes, he. uh, there's a a quote from him uh, around this time. The Irish Times... uh, was interviewing Harris and they suggested that he submit my boy to your vision. And he said, they know wiser over there. They know I cannot sing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so my boy is, is basically a cobbled together. It says on the back cover, it says album concept and synopsis by Richard Harris. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so it actually I'll has have to read you a couple of many, the synopsis many descriptions moments.
1: of each song and how they tie together.
0: Go ahead. Well, I'm gonna to jump to the I'm gonna to jump to the to the descriptions on side two first before we get into this. So it says side two, requiem, written by Jim Webb. After a night of love with Beth, he suspects that their marriage is over. And then the next track says, This is where I came in, Jim Webb. It is she leaves him. <laughs>
1: Uh, yeah, I remember so cracking funny. up so hard over that, <laughs> and cracking other people up as well by showing them that that liner note. But each song has its own and, mini description like that, right?
0: Correct. Yeah, but uh, th- that's the funniest one. It's where <laughs> it is. It is. <laughs> so, my boy is is written by a group, a bunch of songwriters, but um, right. The concept of the album was put together by, by Richard Harris himself. Right. So and this was... Uh, I have to say, this is one of the most depressing albums of all time, <laughs> yeah. except it's awesome. Except what? It's awesome. Yeah, yeah. But it's It's super depressing. It's, super depressing. it's basically <laughs> about the beginning and the horrible ending of, of a romance. Yeah. A man meets a woman. He's completely in love. They have children. And then everything comes to a horrible conclusion. And that's like basically all of side two. Divorce so i guess is this album autobiographical maybe not in lyrics but in intent because this was when richard harris's own marriage ended it was after yeah and it was also uh
1: i mean there's some interesting um things to point out uh he had formed his own production company called limbridge with his brother dermot harris uh so dermot Mm -hmm. harris is the executive producer on this record and uh you know uh he had control I think he had like complete control over what songs went in and um and so on and and they were having songwriters submit songs to them uh th- through Limbridge productions so he was getting stuff sent to him all the time so he could sort of pick and choose which songs he wanted to use and he had had a falling out with Jimmy Webb by this point over a rolls royce that he promised to give Jimmy Webb did you know this
0: he yes they had a <laughs> they had a bet that if um the song, maybe you know the details better. It was a Rolls Royce that had belonged to Princess Margaret,
1: that Richard Harris owned, and uh he told uh Jimmy Webb, you know, that if MacArthur Park went top five, you can have my Rolls, you know. <laughs> and uh but
0: then he welched on the bet, as and then said. He,
1: he he wouldn't give it to him, and he 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 sent him a catalog and said, you can pick out any Rolls Royce you want, and and Jimmy Webb was like, but I wanted Richard's Rolls, and. uh and he was like, he was very, he seemed still bitter about it in this interview in the book, because he said, uh, you know, MacArthur Park went to number two all over the bloody fucking world. <laughs> and he still wouldn't give him the Rolls Royce. So they weren't on speaking terms at this point. And uh, Jim Jim Webb wouldn't answer Richard Harris's phone calls. But it, but they still got four uh, Webb compositions into My Boy.
0: Yeah, they had all been previously recorded. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's mention Susie Horton again. The, oh, yeah. I think the standout track on My Boy is called Requiem, but Absolutely. it's not an original song for Harris.
1: Yeah, so Requiem was originally done by The Fifth Dimension?
0: Yes, uh, on the album The Magic Garden w- from about f- five years earlier.
1: Yeah, so it's a complete reinterpretation of, of that, right?
0: Yes, but tell them the full title of Requiem.
1: All right, so the original title of it was... Requiem 820 Latham and that is the actual address of one of Jimmy Webb's you know the, the woman that the song is dedicated to so
0: he doxed her yeah <laughs> so he doxed her in the actual title of the song I love,
1: I love how we can keep we can keep bringing things into contemporary culture this way
0: <laughs> like imagine being a songwriter and like doxing your girlfriend's address as the title of the song
1: so unacceptable. <laughs> no. so, unacceptable. Wow, so, so
0: Webb was pioneering in, in, in cucking and doxing.
1: <laughs> yep.
2: When I came to you there on that cold telephone pole, horror of the night, and you came out to meet me. In that filmy thing, sat down on the porch swing
0: There's about three or four songs that Harris did that are almost gangster and and especially Requiem. Mm-hmm. Requiem is just so heavy.
1: Yeah The ending of Requiem is so incredible.
0: But I could see a guy driving around in in l a in a drop top listening to Requiem. it would It would actually work. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Requiem is just mind blowing. It's like a David, again with David Axelrod, but there's also, this is where this album seems to sort of cross over and be in Scott Walker territory.
2: Instead, I was found dead and well, carrying on my life with much gusto and death breath, buried without casket and no one. My am the
0: So, just as you're recovering from the intensity of Requiem, comes this oh, yeah. second song called This Is Where I Came In, which is the most, um, I don't know what the word is for it, self pitying. Yes. <laughs> what can you say? Um, uh, it's, it's got. It has some bathos. yeah it's it's very big there's so much bathos on this one and more importantly more higher wire walking in terms of uh being out of his element in terms of his register yeah
1: yeah that's the one with that they never stopped the show
0: yeah this is where i came in sounds like it could fit in on like a scott walker album for sure it's very scott walker
2: Way to the door. This is where I came in. All my life has been a Technicolor feature that I've had to watch in tears from the thirteenth row. And I've lost every girl that I. The
0: and now we must move on to one of the most underrated of these four records. Like, I remember being kind of underwhelmed by it when I first heard it, but it's grown in my estimation ever mm-hmm. since, called Slides. Slides. And the front cover of the record is,
1: uh, it says, in the style of a... Actual slide, it says, processed
0: by, where it would normally say Kodachrome, ABC Dunhill Records. The (laughs) packaging of this album is incredible. It it looks like a gigantic slide, and it has a cellophane uh, cover, and then when you open it, a transparent uh, cover. And when you open it up, you see that all the uh, liner notes are all in handwritten. Oh, right, as if it's on the back of a slide. Oh, I never got that. Yeah, that's right. Inside the album, when you pull it out, it has a picture in it that is referred to in the actual song. It's,
1: oh mine mine doesn't have
0: that. Okay. Oh. oh mine I have the I have the beautiful Indian girl.
1: Oh <laughs> let me see. Oh, hold on. Oh yeah, mine doesn't have that. Wow. Yeah,
0: mine comes with a double sided, oh beautiful Indian girl. One of oh the, again, God. problematic moments from this album. Deeply problematic, all of it. So the concept of Slides sneaks up on you because it, the album is called Slides and it looks like a big slide. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you listen to the songs and they're all about sort of basically hitchhiking across America. Having a little romance here and there. Before I get too far into it, the, the, this album was entirely written by a songwriter named Tony Romeo, who right. had a massive hit in the very early 70s with I Think I Love You by The Partridge Family. Right, yeah. So I had never heard that song until this year. That's a really good song. It's actually a really good song and very complicated. And the 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 sort of silliness of that song is is all over slides. I think. Yeah. Uh,
1: he was Canadian.
0: Yeah, he was Tony Canadian. Roni. He he wrote a lot of jingles too. He was an ad man.
1: Oh, okay. I don't know where he was based out of, but uh, uh, they called him a hip young Canadian on the, in the book. And he, he submitted, he submitted the songs uh, via Limbridge productions. So uh, Dermot Harris uh, heard them and, uh, you know, I guess realized that they'd be perfect for Richard Harris. So, and then, and then Tony Romeo ended up producing the whole record
0: as well. It says conceived and produced by Tony Romeo. What's interesting about this album is that it's um, it looks like a big slide and it's got, all the song titles on the album come with a little picture that looks like a, a Kodachrome slide. Right. Yeah. But as so, you're listening to this album, and it's and it's about hitchhiking across America and the vagabond life. But the second last song on the album is called Slides, and it reveals that the entire record you've been listening to is the reminiscences of a college teacher who's about to lose his job, mm-hmm. um, who shows his students before he gets fired. A slideshow recounting his life story, and we hear a slide projector <laughs> clicking as Harris is walking you through the record that you just heard. <laughs> you know. hear refrains from the earlier songs on the album. I know, it's uh, strangely meta.
2: I suppose you heard the word that's going about, my superiors doubt, I'm fit to teach you. Have a nip before the game and they'll impeach you Forget about the fact that I reach you I reach you Well enough of that, let's get on with it I've arranged to show some slides that might amuse you and if of course you're bored then I'll excuse you.
0: He's like goodbye Mr. Chips or whatever. He's like yeah, t- the misunderstood t- teacher, but like he's basically being fired because he was drinking <laughs> on the job. The <laughs> <laughs> you're supposed to feel sorry for him. It's like this weird <laughs> dead poet society plot. It
1: was it was already unacceptable in 1988 or whenever we first heard it but yeah. it's really
0: unacceptable now yeah, yeah. no it's just anyway <laughs> this this is the one that i have seen the most of in dollar bins and i mm-hmm. i would just say grab it if you see it because yeah, it's yeah. an incredible package and it's a very very strange record but what are your favorite mm-hmm. songs from slides well gin buddy for
1: sure gin buddy is uh, told from the point of view of a hobo quote unquote who appears in the Slides uh, song as well, who uh, is addressing the entire song to a, a, a mister who we realize later is the narrator of Slides. And he's like, Mister, we've been friends. Mister, we've been friends.
2: Since we was little, he's my friend, and I take his part. Ah, he ain't drunk. He's just
1: foggy. (laughs) He's talking about his friend, who is his gin buddy, and talking about how he was once a a daring young man. You ain't never gonna see no more. And then uh, at the end of the song it, it goes completely over the top when he when he's he's talking about how he was an acrobat and he used to fly high as a birdie and it, actually that's not the part the part is uh, when he when he sings uh, <laughs> so when he says so I work for the money just to buy the gin toddy <laughs> like he suddenly goes it suddenly goes completely over the top. And I I seem to remember you did a deeper dive into Slides a bit later on, like a few years after we had been listening to Harris. Uh, You you dove into it a bit more and you found other songs that hadn't come to our attention before, like Blue Canadian Rocky Dream and and Sonny Joe.
0: Yeah. Blue Canadian Rocky Dream is an incredible song because uh, it mentions Canada. Mm -hmm. This is the only Richard Harris uh, uh, album with a Canadian connection.
2: you feel you're right there, Blue Canadian rocky dream, the one that takes you back home again. I love you, baby. I love you. I love you.
1: I love you, baby.
0: Oh, it's so good. It's, it's just so good. so good, and it has this sort of um, sort of old timey piano line, yeah. like a player piano, honky
1: tonk style uh, piano. Yeah, there's a lot of honky tonk on this on this record.
0: The grower on on slides is a song called Sunny Joe, mm-hmm. and I'm not the only one who feels this way. I found some guy on the internet saying that like that song brings him to tears every time, <laughs> and it was just so powerful. <laughs> Sunny Joe also has a gangsta feel to it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah,
2: I'm drifting down the track with the pack on my back and I'm empty inside trying to hide from Lord knows what going Lord knows where
0: So his final uh, statement, really, was uh, an album called I, in the membership of my days. Poems and songs by Richard Harris, performed by Richard Harris and his sons, Damien, Jared, and Jamie. Yes. We all Jar- know Jared now. Jared, one of my favorite actors. He's a terrific actor. He actually reminds me a lot of his dad, but Jared yes. Harris is, is really was very good on Mad Men mm-hmm. and on Chernobyl. But oh, yeah. he was also a very good Andy Warhol in the yeah. movie I Shot Andy Warhol.
1: That was the first thing I saw him in. Yeah, Yeah. I took note of him
0: then, then, and then I discovered that he was Richard Harris's son.
1: Yeah, and if you look on the back cover of I and the Membership of My Days, you can totally see it's him. Like, as one of the little boys uh, uh, Mm -hmm. on the back cover.
0: So the concept of this is it's a a very, very pretentious, um, doom-laden album where... Harris reads poems that he of new vintage, but he gets his children to read the poems that he wrote when he was a child. Oh That's yeah, the it's concept. the most self indulgent uh, thing possible. And with a full orchestra, and uh, it's a tough listen. it's yeah, not that yeah. that good a record. But, but when um, when we
1: would make when we would make mixtapes of Richard Harris, uh, that record was really good for mining little moments that you could just throw on at the end of the the
0: sides of the cassette. Yeah, when you, when you had uh, yeah. 30 seconds left on a tape, because we used to make mixtapes all the time. And Younger people yeah.
1: might not know this, but you would always have a little bit of extra space at the end of a tape uh, that you didn't want to leave blank. So you would put half a song or, or just little excerpts from things there. And mm. uh, you, were, you were an expert. I think you introduced me to that concept, actually, but uh, you were an expert at that.
0: Yeah, where if you only have 45 seconds left on a tape, find something that you wouldn't want to listen to for more than 45 seconds <laughs> yeah. and, and put that on. So uh, I and the Membership of My Days was a perfect one for that because there are all these, uh, dis, uh, like, just, ugh, sound bites. At one yeah. point, Richard Harris is, like, over an organ, is talking about the pubic altar of my greed. Yeah. And what's and then, the other one? Then, Burst my dumb egg. Burst my dumb egg. But then the worst is, he says, the dark vagina of my death.
1: That one took me by surprise. When I when I re-listened to the record uh, a few days ago, I was like, what? <laughs> Completely forgot about that.
0: Suffice it to say, go get all of Richard Harris's albums. They're incredible.
1: Yes, cannot recommend enough. If you're a fan of Scott Walker, if you're a fan of The Association, The Fifth Dimension, uh, ropey-voiced singers in general, singing too closely to the microphone. Serge Gainsbourg. Yeah,
0: yeah. if you like uh, as I do, the sort of difference between tone and content uh, in music mm-hmm. where it's a quite beautiful orchestration but very, very strange and dark singing that has nothing to do with the orchestration. Richard Harris yeah. is, uh, is, you can't really go wrong. Cause if
2: it's not there,
0: I want to talk to you a little bit. Thank you so much for the music that you've done for the show. But I w- oh, you're welcome. But you have a newish record out called High January.
1: Yes. Uh, so I I released a record in April of this year called High January on Tin Angel Records. And this record was uh, a notable milestone in my music career uh, because it was produced by Sean O'Hagan, uh, my longtime hero, um, who was the founder of the High Lamas, um, a band that recorded many records in the '90s and 2000s, uh, up to 2016, actually, of um, orchestral pop music with with lyrics uh, strongly reminiscent of the '60s and um, early '70s. But um, one of the uh, one of the only ones that seemed to do it without being pastiche about it and, uh, seemed to be, you know, very genuine in its love for sixties and seventies music. And I had always wanted to uh, work with him since the late nineties. And, um, I, uh, through a lucky coincidence, I got to meet him, uh, through a Brazilian musician called Cassine. And, um, uh, he introduced me uh, to, or he actually played Sean O'Hagan, some of my music and, uh, he liked it. And then I met him the next time I went to England uh, because my record label is based in England, and I, prior to 2020, was going there frequently, <laughs> and um, so it ended up being this lucky thing that I, I, I worked with him, and um, we recorded it at uh, Andy Ramsey's uh, studio, the drummer from Stereo Lab, and also Leticia Sadier, uh, the singer from Stereo Lab, and co-songwriter of all of Stereo Lab's catalog, um, uh, sang on it as well. That's a feather in your cap. It was. And, and, um, you know, it's kind of, of, of all the people that I ever wanted to meet in my life, uh, Sean O'Hagan and Leticia Sadie are two of, you know, they've got to be in the top three, you know, (laughs) of all the, of all the people who are sort of doing stuff that I was super into in the nineties and two thousands. And I I, I got to meet her earlier than that, actually, through another uh, connection through a French musician called uh, Julien Gask. Uh, I got to meet her uh, one year earlier than I met Sean O'Hagan, and um, we became friends as well. And, uh, you know, it's been a a real, as I said, a milestone in my
0: life. No, no, it's great. And, And it must be a thrill for you because there such great musicians, and yet they have such respect for you as a musician. Yeah, they
1: totally treated me as an equal and, um, you know, made me feel at ease. And um, uh, Sean O'Hagan, like while we were making the record, um, he asked if he could have um, creative input into the songs as well. And I said, yes. And so he ended up restructuring a lot of the songs, like he would sort of cut he would take the demo and cut it. Like while we were recording the song in the studio, he would make a new cut of the song and say, why don't you do this and shorten it by a minute or something. And then we would relearn it and, um, you know, re reperform the song in the new structure and ended up improving, improving the songs in a lot of ways. And he also was great at uh, sort of making these little micro moments in the songs where he would say, you know, you don't need this verse here. You can cut, cut this verse here and just put this little, two-bar uh, bridge into the next uh, section and then that's all you need and those those moments totally that was a total revelation as well and it it was just so nice to to work with someone who cared that much while we were in the studio you know
0: one of the things that this podcast was sort of spawned by was the you know the pandemic that we're all living through and the sort of isolation and coming up with ways to sort of express oneself outside of the sort of the isolation that we're all in for our own good. But I wanted to ask you in, in all this sort of solitude, I mean, we all have to, uh, time and opportunity to sort of watch things or read things or listen to things that can bring us some solace and some inspiration. And I was just wondering, if, is there a particular work of art or of culture that you uh that really struck a chord with you in the last little while that you'd want to talk about
1: well i i mentioned uh i mentioned this uh even though it came out in 2019 it was the record uh, purple mountains uh by david berman um which i mean i heard right when it came out in 2019 but uh, i i i think that's kind of the most resonant um, contemporary thing that i've i've heard and uh it was made um, extremely sad by the fact that he committed suicide, you know, four weeks after the record came out, uh, right before he was about to start, um, touring. And, um, during those four weeks, I, I listened to the record, i got really into it and got into all of his, um, back catalog with his previous band, Silver Jews, and, um, realizing that this was this brilliant songwriter, brilliant lyricist who I had missed out on and, um, I thought that the Purple Mountains record was this kind of repudiation of uh, death, and because um, he had had he had tried to commit suicide earlier in 2003, and I and he had gone through a, a long period of non activity, like from 2010 to 2019. So, I thought that this was going to be this triumphant comeback, and was listening to all the Purple Mountain songs in that light. But then, of course, his death cast the songs in a completely different light again, and made it seem like, you know perhaps, uh, well, I don't, I don't think he planned to commit suicide, but I think just his, the dark, you know, his demons just overtook him, but, but,
0: uh, I remember yeah. the day that he died, I didn't know his work for all that well. Um, but I went to a record store that day and they were playing nights that won't happen mm-hmm. in the record store. And I found it very, very sad. And I looked over and I saw that all the staff in the record store were also fighting back tears. Yeah. It was, uh. Yeah very poignant little moment.
1: Yeah. Yeah, there's a very good interview that he did just before his death with Vish Khanna, the great uh, Canadian uh, interviewer and um he he said uh, and it was the only interview he gave actually. He said um that that song uh Nights That Won't Happen, it was a play on words of Nights in White Satin. Yes. <laughs> He liked, uh, he liked what he, I mean, he, he was a poet, so he could use the word mondegreen in a sentence. And he said that was a mondegreen, words that sound like other words. Hmm. I love that.
0: Well, it's been a long show and a very, very funny show, but yes. um, we might as well wrap it up. It's been so much fun. Mark Her darling will you come back on the show sometime?
1: I absolutely will. I
0: would love okay. to. We'll and, come up uh, with something to talk
1: about. That would be so much fun. Yes, I would love that.
0: Well, thank you very much. Um, Thank you. I guess we'll say our goodbyes here. Uh, Please follow our Twitter account, Junk Filter Pod. And uh, I also have a Patreon because we are going to be offering uh, bonus episodes for our subscribers. That's only $5 a month. I was very heartened that without even starting the podcast, I got a few subscribers. And uh, please tell all your friends if you enjoy. And please like it and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast provider. My name is Jesse Hawken, and thanks for listening. Goodbye.